0: You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, content strategist with RSA Conference, and today I am joined by our guest, Safi Mojidi, who will be talking about why DevSecOps. Off- approaches are critical to securing virtual healthcare applications, particularly for the LGBTQ population. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so that you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask Safi to take a moment to introduce himself before we dive into today's topic.
0: Safi, over to you. Hi, Casey. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, I am currently a doctoral candidate and cybersecurity specialist with about 15 years of experience in cybersecurity. I have led the design, implementation, uh, execution of many enterprise cloud security programs. I've led work at NASA, Department of Justice, uh, Department of Defense, Slack, and Salesforce. And currently, I am the head of information security at a healthcare startup called Folks Health, uh, where we provide telehealth care that really centers the queer and trans community but is certainly available for anyone regardless of how you identify. Um, I've also founded a nonprofit called Hacking the Workforce to really increase the visibility and retention of black LGBTQ professionals in leadership positions within cybersecurity but more broadly tech. Uh, I am also a two-sport Hall of Famer in basketball and semi-pro tackle football. In my free time, I love working out, roller skating, and traveling with friends and family. So, happy to be here.
1: And we are so happy to have you here with us today. So, let's go ahead and jump in with the first question, which will hopefully set the stage for the connection to DevSecOps and software integrity. Can you maybe share with our listeners, what is your perspective on the ways in which virtual health providers... Create favorable conditions for underrepresented individuals to access healthcare.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Casey. Uh, I think we are at a very interesting time, both in healthcare and the opportunities for access that technology can provide. Um, I think at the start of 2020, uh, the COVID-19 health crisis really ushered in a perfect opportunity to fundamentally shift how healthcare is provided and accessed. Around 97% of all primary care physicians were essentially forced to leverage telehealth, and that sector grew by almost 92%. It's a market that's poised to grow to almost a $400 billion industry in the next five years, so moving forward, health systems will really need to focus on, you know, their ability to continuously and accurately evaluate the patient experiences that they're providing their members as well as increasing operational efficiency and clinical outcomes. But I really think um, as we look to the future of healthcare, it's important to ensure that telehealth doesn't now make it open season on underrepresented individuals while they seek access to care. What I mean by that is, you know, the question is no longer when providers will finally embrace telehealth, but how successfully they'll be at implementing the necessary security features to continue to scale its use. Uh, and I really think DevSecOps is one of the most important practices healthcare companies can implement to reduce risk, uh, increase software integrity, and lower the likelihood of a data breach or major security incident. Um, as we see mm-hmm. more interconnection and, and data exchange between healthcare organizations, uh, the underlying platforms will continue to see quality or security issues that could really lead to serious breaches or system outages. Both of those things can really erode the trust of a patient, and harm the organization's reputation. So, um, you know, employing strong DevSecOps principles are necessary not only to prevent the things I just mentioned, but also ensure that software delivery is consistent, um, we can reduce the number of incidents, and really maintain a positive customer experience for all patients the last thing I'll mention is the importance of DevSecOps is really to figure out a way to abstract humans out of the process, right? Um, The sheer magnitude of HIPAA, state, um, federal rules and regulations are difficult to implement and certainly more difficult to manage manually. So, you know, it's really important that development happens with iterative automated approaches to deploying software that is secure and is able to scale.
1: Okay. That's a lot. And I want to kind of try and maybe break some of that down in some follow-up questions. Um, You know, you Mm -hmm. talk about access, right, and um, Mm -hmm. data Mm -hmm. breaches. So, with the increased use of virtual health apps, there's clearly this influx of digital health records, which, as you point out, opens the door to cyber threats. So, then, can you talk about some of the risks to that personal health information. And obviously, it's more desirable because it's more lucrative for the attacker Mm -hmm. to access personal health information than just personally identifiable information, right?
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, I think the industry has made some great strides over the last, let's say, 15 years in making sure that stakeholders are connecting with the information the right way and accessing it the right way. Um, but mistakes happen. Um, you know, there are, there's not a hundred percent, um, foolproof method to deploy completely secure applications uh, and particularly mobile applications. But I think it's really become evident just how nefarious actors are looking to interact with um, healthcare industry systems. So, you know, within the past few years, identity theft has become a huge issue, uh, ransomware. Uh, and then, you know, from a nation state perspective, you know, we're, we're starting to see more and more cybercrime, cyber espionage that healthcare companies are now becoming victim to because they do hold such valuable information about so many different people. Um, You know, I gave a training on 1Password the other day, and I think it was a real eye-opener for some people. Um, You know, one of the things that we would like to try to see is effectively controlling how people are interacting with healthcare applications and systems, right? So we want to make sure we're providing people with the tools so that they can protect themselves. Um, And I'll go into some of those a little bit later, but a data breach of a healthcare company will almost certainly include a patient's demographic information, um, but also their health and financial information. Right, so medical records, um, credit card information. Sometimes it can include diagnosis, treatments. You know, lab test results, uh, prescription information, and definitely other health insurance-related types of information. Um, when a patient's medical information is exposed, the effects of that can be catastrophic on someone's life. For example patients with exposed medical information puts those individuals at greater risk for insurance fraud or identity theft. Um, and when we're talking about marginalized communities, this can really have deleterious effects on finances, mental health, and ultimately quality of life, right? So for members of the LGBTQ community, this can quickly become a safety issue uh, in that information about their gender identity or sexual orientation is no longer confidential, right? right. So really talking about significantly impacting people's lives if we are not good custodians of their data and or effectively implementing the necessary controls to prevent some of those um, threats from actually being realized. And, you know, I want to just also say this isn't just, you know, an issue for patients. This is absolutely also a business issue. Uh, You know, according to research done by IBM, the cost of the average data breach is about $4.2 million. Um, there was a startup called uh, My MyNurse. Uh, they actually had to shut their doors two months after a data breach because they effectively couldn't recover from uh, the amount of penalties and uh, the loss of reputation that came along with their data breach. So these types of incidents can expose personal data. And now, as a patient, I'm worried about, you know, how... Can I be assured that moving forward, you know, this company, this healthcare company, you know, this physician's office will really be a good custodian of my data, right? How can I overcome the trauma of dealing with, you know, my personal health information being made public and or being held for ransomware? So, you know, I've come to a doctor's appointment and I'm not able to have my visit because my physician isn't able to access my medical records, right, because they've been held at ransom. So, mm-hmm. you know, that those breaches really erode relationships between the patients, their clinical teams. Uh, in certain communities, this was one of, you know, virtual health or telehealth was the one way that made access to qualified medical care a possibility, right? So now patients may be less willing to seek medical attention, Um, you know, share potentially pertinent health information with the medical staff and ultimately that leads to unfavorable health outcomes for that individual.
1: Absolutely, and you know this is not directly related, but it got me thinking of it as I was listening to you. I read last week in Info Security Magazine had reported that sex cases in the UK doubled in 2021 compared to 2020, and it is the ability of malicious actors to use this private information, even if it's not you know sexting, sure. but it's it's private information that no one wants publicly shared that then become, right. uh, you know, a vulnerability to the vulnerable already. Um, so, you know, definitely cognizant of the threat. Um, so what then are some DevSecOps approaches that these app developers or virtual health providers can take in order to secure digital health?
0: That's a good question. I think there are definitely some approaches that remain true regardless of the technology stack being used. So, for example, minimize storage of sensitive data. Um, I always tell developers and engineers, if you don't need it, don't store it. If it's not germane to uh, figuring out if your code works or if the application is functional, certainly, you know, don't store that information locally on your machine and, you know, purge it in the places where it may happen to transmit through. So, Um, Another good one, because APIs are the thing of the future, um, is really securing the back end and those connections from malicious attackers or malformed APIs. So what we're really talking about here is API authentication um, and really securing their transport mechanisms, so really understanding Uh, thoroughly what APIs are doing, what access they have within your environment. You know, is that access overly permissive? Um, You know, what areas are you able to lock down an API and still maintain functionality? Additionally, ensuring that, you know, we're we're as stewards of technology, we are creating an opportunity for high-level authentication or complex passwords. Um, And in certain situations, even multi factor authentication. Um, you know, I think we do ourselves a disservice, uh, the healthcare industry or the cybersecurity industry. Um, we do ourselves a, a disservice if we're not enforcing the need for strong, complex passwords. So, you know, at least 12 characters, including one uppercase, one lowercase letter, special character, a number, a space potentially. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you know, start implementing or recommending for people when they're when they're signing up for accounts to use passphrases, right? Things that are easy for them to remember, but still meet the criteria of a complex password with those uh, components I, I just mentioned. Other things that are I think are easier to miss if you particularly don't have uh, you know someone who can speak to encryption in house, um, but just really making sure you're using industry and uh, best practice. Modern encryption methods. So really making sure everything's encrypted in transit to protect against privacy leaks or data theft. Um, uh, but then also, you know, you can't, you can't forget about implementing file level database, uh, and source code encryption, right? Last and certainly not least, I will say application developers should really make sure, uh, that they are prioritizing penetration testing activities, both from an internal and external perspective. So, um, internally, you know, hopefully your tests are automated. You have a CI CD pipeline. Um, you know, you have gates in that CI CD pipeline that will run quality control checks, but also run vulnerability checks and assessments prior to code being deployed. I think that's crucial because you certainly want to identify vulnerabilities or flaws before they make their way into production. They're a lot easier to fix when they're uh, still in development and certainly cost a lot less to fix. Mm -hmm. But I also think some people may overlook the importance of also having external penetration tests um, conducted at least annually. Uh, You know, external penetration tests in my experience have been a good way to really identify public facing security risks and vulnerabilities, right? So um, as an application developer, you're not necessarily trying to brute force your way into an application, right? Like that that might not be one of the things that you check for during your deployment um, checks. But that is something that, for example, would be covered if you were to um, conduct an external penetration test, right? Really um, doing some enumeration, uh, making sure that there aren't any vulnerable aspects of your um, code pipeline that are publicly available or have um, vulnerabilities or threats that are in the wild and have been confirmed as, um, you know, able to be compromised. So, you know, doing your homework, doing some open source intelligence around how you um, select vendors that you work with, tools that you implement, and certainly the methods in which you use to deploy secure code into your production environment.
1: And I think, you know, your point about the penetration test is so important, and it's really, I don't know what needs to change, whether it's the narrative or perception or mm-hmm. what it is, but I feel like there is this fear from uh, mm-hmm. developers that if we go through this external pen test and they do discover a vulnerability, and then it is disclosed that is going to reflect badly on us right? And it it seems to me that it's the exact opposite. Like, hey, kudos to you. Like you found it before a malicious actor did.
0: Yes. I think it's like you hit on a few very important things there. Um, The first of which is I like to tell people you need to build your cybersecurity culture before it builds itself. And the example Mm -hmm. you just described is exactly what that is, right? So most people are worried about job security. Everyone wants to do a great job. Everyone wants everyone to know that they're doing the right thing or they believe that they're doing the right thing. And so, you know, having someone, having an outsider come in to essentially audit your work is never a good feeling um, if it's proposed that way, right? But if we mm. can shift the mindset and the culture into becoming less reactive right? Like, because that's what an incident causes all of us to do is to react, right? Right. So in the event of a breach, now we're going through our incident response plan and capabilities if we have one, right? So one of the things I like to tell people is no one's spying on you and it's not a mechanism to test your aptitude at your job. This is a business decision that needs to be made in order to reduce our risk as an organization, Right. So, like, Mm -hmm. you are a developer. Your role is to develop code. We're not asking you to conduct security tests because that's not your wheelhouse, right? Like, that's not your specialty. But if we don't have a mechanism in house to make sure that happens, you know, the world is full of consultants, right? You hire a consultant when you don't have capabilities internally. And that's not a knock on anyone. It's, It's just a thing, right? Like, cybersecurity professionals are hard to find, they're hard to keep, um, and the way you overcome that challenge is to hire a qualified consultant who you know is reputable and has worked with the type of environment you're asking them to conduct a penetration test on. Um, And so, first, I definitely say, you know, it's, it's about changing the narrative, as you mentioned, but, you know, leaders from the top down really being intentional about how they're communicating the importance of cybersecurity, the importance of understanding our cyber risk, the importance of understanding our risk posture, and what our level of acceptable risk is in an organization, right? So at the end of the day, if a CEO or CIO says cybersecurity is important, but we just don't have it in our budget right? That is a risk that they are choosing to accept to not identify a consultant or have an external penetration test conducted, right? So, Mm -hmm. it's not one that I would recommend. However, there is, you know, there's always the business requirements, right? There's always the economics that come into play. Um, And one of the things that I like to tell people is it's a lot cheaper to go ahead and pay a penetration tester now than particularly in healthcare applications to pay for the cost of a breach, right? The global average for the cost of a breach is over $4.2 million. And so healthcare, as I mentioned earlier, is the industry with the highest breach cost. So we can say on right. average about 80,000 people are affected by a breach, and that costs about $4.2 million. I guarantee you it's a lot cheaper to go ahead and get a pen test than it is to deal right. with. right. Right. <laughs> Right. I know security people are expensive, but we're not that expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: So one thing I also wanted to touch on in this conversation is, of course, the beloved SBOM, right? There's been a lot of Mm -hmm. conversation around the software bill of materials. Um, In 2017, the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Task Force wrote a report on improving healthcare industry cybersecurity. And in it, they wrote... These six imperatives that they identified in the report reflect a shared understanding that for the healthcare industry, cybersecurity issues are, at their heart, patient safety issues, which you've talked about. As healthcare becomes increasingly dependent on information technology, our ability to protect our systems will have an ever greater impact on the health of the patients we serve. While much of what we recommend will require hard work, difficult decisions, and commitment of resources... We will be encouraged and unified by our shared values as healthcare industry professionals and our commitment to providing safe, high-quality care. So profound, right? The report goes on to talk about the criticality of securing mobile devices and applications and references the NIST special publication, 1800. But that was five years ago, right? So what are other frameworks or guidelines that developers need to be mindful of in order to ensure software integrity.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I remember being really excited about that report when it came out. I think both industries, information security and healthcare, realize that technology is coming and maybe we are not as prepared as we should be. I think there's a few organizations, right? The National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, so NCCOE, which is a part of NIST, It was created a few years ago. It's a collaborative hub where essentially industry organizations, government agencies, um, and academic institutions work together to address business problems that are now becoming cybersecurity challenges for organizations. So uh, they provide easily adaptable example cybersecurity solutions that use the best um, standards, best practices, as well as commercially available technology to solve this problem. I think another good one is uh, Project Mobile Security that was created by OWASP. So this is more of a centralized resource that essentially give developers and security teams resources that they need to build and maintain mobile, secure mobile applications. And, of course, that's open source. The goal there is really to classify mobile security risks and then help provide uh, controls to either reduce their impact or likelihood of uh, exploitation. And I think the last thing for folks to start really being mindful of is privacy laws. Like very, they're coming, (laughs) they're here in some Mm -hmm. states, but uh, you know, it's just a matter of time before we there is some federal guidance that speaks specifically to privacy um, for technology. Right now, the healthcare industry really needs to make sure that we're at least adhering to current laws, right? So, There are laws that are currently in place in certain states that really deal with unauthorized access, malware, and viruses, right? Like that's a law in all 50 states. There's certainly denial of service laws that currently I think is in around 25 states. Um, Right now there's ransomware laws in a few states, spyware laws, and phishing laws. So there are a lot of things that as we're developing applications and we're, you know, requesting information from patients or customers, there are still ways that we can be responsible in how we're communicating. And then certainly because of some of those uh, identified risks that I just mentioned, we certainly want to make sure we're building in um, security controls that will prevent as much as possible those things from being exploited.
1: Mm-hmm. So, speaking of preventing things from being exploited, given the sensitive information that could be accessed if these healthcare provider applications were breached, is there a greater burden or duty of care for those who are knowingly developing applications that will be used by the LGBTQ population?
0: Absolutely. I think, at the end of the day, there's the technical aspect of controlling access to data in an application you're building and ways to ensure that those technical controls are in place is absolutely compliance testing your application, right? It's kind of the first line of defense to ensure, first of all, that you're in compliance with, you know, uh, HIPAA regulations, security rules, privacy rules, but it definitely helps you also identify uh, potential security concerns in your application. And in order to effectively manage or remediate those issues, it's it's definitely major to ensure you have the tools that can help you maintain and manage and also create guardrails for developers. I think it's really crucial to reduce risk, but also helps developers be more productive and can hopefully, you know, abstract them away from, you know, some of the more manual repetitive tasks that can be automated. Um, and now they can essentially pull back and take a look at, overall, like how are people interacting with their software? You know, that's where UX designers and developers come into play, where they're really taking a look at how the functionality of an application could better serve X population, right? So, and if we're talking about specifically the LGBTQ population, um, there are certain considerations that need to be made, right? This is a group of people who traditionally have not had the best relationships with um, healthcare providers, right? Or uh, culturally competent healthcare providers who understand the ways to communicate, um, you know, understand the importance of asking for pronouns, understand there shouldn't be stigma um, attached to gender identity or sexual orientation. And telehealth is really unlocking doors for access to these people, but... On the flip side, uh, you know, there, we're, we're kind of operating in a environment, tech specifically, where there is not a ton of diversity, right? So the the last thing that I would mention um, in terms of healthcare providers um, and, and the greater burden of uh, or due care that they need to pay in order to serve this population is really take a look at your Development teams, your operations teams, and your security teams—right—are those groups of people diverse? Right, like overall, if your entire organization is diverse, great. For the most part, the healthcare industry is a pretty diverse melting pot of um, people from all walks of life, age, um, race, etc. But if you don't have enough differing opinions, views on how to achieve. Uh, goals, you know, resolve problems, really future proof your application from ending up on, you know, the five o'clock news. Uh, you know, I think it is really important to make sure that those teams are made up of very different people or a diverse uh, set of engineers or technical leads so that there really is more insight into what the broader population needs out of your application or uh, the services that you're providing.
1: I love it. Safi, it has been so great to have you here. I I, I love listening to you talk because you just have so much depth of knowledge <laughs> about, about so many different things. So Thank you. before we wrap up, do you have any parting words of your wisdom to share with our listeners?
0: You know, from the healthcare perspective, continuing to be flexible and agile as technology facilitates modernization of, you know, our applications and systems, uh, you know, I think there is a perception that healthcare applications are, are just gargantuan, you know, huge, monolithic systems that cannot be secured unless they are locked in a room without internet access. Um, and, you know, that's not the way of the future. And I, re- I really employ the healthcare industry to try to do as much modernization as possible and at the same time bringing along cybersecurity professionals along the journey to help you really ensure that the modernization is happening in a way that is efficient, effective, but also uh, secure. Um, and then I guess the last part would be, you know, just like it's vital for members of the LGBTQ population or other under, underrepresented minorities in the U.S. to see themselves reflected in the healthcare workforce or in, you know, their ability to access qualified medical care. Um, You know, I think it's equally as important to ensure that that same level of diversity is also continued to be talked about um, and it's important to elevate it, um, in terms of diversity in cybersecurity and more broadly tech, right? Like I think, without that diversification of thought, lived experiences, you know, mindsets, perceptions, all those things come into play when we're developing applications, when we're securing systems, whether or not we consciously think about it. I think without that, we're all being left more susceptible to cybercrime. And so, you know, I would just say as we continue to transform into a digital-first society you know lack of diversity of thought will also increase our susceptibility to a continuing growing list of cybersecurity threats so uh, you know if we continue to rely on you know same people you know groups that ask the same types of questions and come from the same background um, it's going to remain very difficult to continue to combat the numerous persistent threats to security
1: absolutely Safi, it has been great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll join us again for a future event. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to DevSecOps and software integrity, we invite you to visit rsiconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC, and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round.